1: and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Heritage Foundation. I'm Andrew Parks, the Assistant Director of Lectures and Seminars. Uh, thank you for joining us today in the Lewis Lerman Auditorium. I just wanted to take this opportunity to remind everyone to please silence your cell phones and encourage anyone who's watching online to submit questions by emailing speaker at heritage.org. Additionally, the recorded video of this program will be posted on the website for anyone's future reference or to share in the future. Now it's my pleasure to introduce the host of today's program, He is the Senior Research Fellow for Defense Programs, focusing on naval warfare and advanced technologies here at the Heritage Foundation in the Center for National Defense. It is my pleasure to introduce Thomas Kallender.
0: Thank you, Andrew. Uh, It is my honor today to be able to host and introduce the Honorable Dr. John Lehman. I had just entered the Naval Academy in the summer of 1986, when uh, the events that Dr. Lehman will talk about here in Ocean's Adventure were in uh, full swing. And uh, when I had to memorize my Navy chain of command, uh, he was at the top of that, uh, that chain of command. Uh, Pennsylvania native, Dr. Lehman holds a Bachelor of Science from St. Joseph's University, Bachelor of Arts and Master's degrees from Cambridge University, and a PhD from the University of Pennsylvania. For more than two decades, he flew various tactical aircraft in the Naval Reserve. He's a founding partner and chairman of the JF Layman and Company. From 1981 to 1987, he served as a secretary of the Navy for President Reagan, where he was a driving force behind implementing the nation's new maritime strategy and building the 600 ship Navy. In addition, he was a naval flight officer in the reserves for 30 years achieving the rank of captain. And he had the unique opportunity to witness the Cold War and this new maritime strategy as not only the sector of the Navy, but actively flying fleet exercises as an A-6 bombardier navigator. He served on numerous boards and organizations, as well as being an award-winning author of several books on naval strategy and history. He was also a member of both the 9-11 Commission and the National Defense Commission. As Dr. Lehman will talk about today, Oceans Venture is not simply a history lesson of what happened in the Cold War of the 1980s, But many of the challenges faced by the U.S. Navy today uh, resonate with what he talks about here today. Please welcome the Honorable John Lehman.
2: Thank you for that uh, very nice uh, uh, introduction that my mother wrote for you. I appreciate it. So uh, it's great to be back here. It's daunting to walk in, though. Uh, uh, immediately to see the bust of my first roommate here in in d c so I have to be careful what i say from particularly after the hearing yesterday so um, it, it, uh, it it's really uh, it, it, it's it's it, interesting to to see history not repeating itself but rhyming. And people often ask me, you know, well, why did why did you write this book? You know, it's a, it's a pretty uh, uh, old topic, really, if you will, the Cold War. What's that? If you ask a millennial, what's that about? Uh, well, it's because nobody else w- wrote it, <laughs> and it's an important story. It really is an important story, and it's uh, a story that uh, needs to be told, but was. Uh, difficult to tell the story itself. I could have written the book in in six months, but to uh, since it goes against the accepted wisdom of how the Cold War ended, uh, it had to be it had to be absolutely backed up with uh, available uh, hard evidence in the records, citations, uh, interviews, quotes, uh, and uh, I had. Uh, one of uh, my uh, uh principal strategic uh, uh thinkers and helpers who worked for me when I was SECNAB, Peter Schwartz who my, uh, many of you I'm sure know uh he was my policeman he wouldn't he would not let me write anything that he could not find a citation for and you know I would say Peter I was there I know <laughs> I wrote it and uh he would say, "Sorry, can't put it in. It's, it's classified." So it really took us 10 years to get uh, get the enough material declassified, uh, particularly uh, with regard to what we knew from uh, particularly t- in technical intelligence uh, what the Russian reaction was to what we were doing, because that was that was quite key, and it was something the President depended on uh, heavily, but it was all highly classified. So, anyway, that's why and how uh, we did the book, took 10 years to get all that stuff done. So, uh, let me just give you a quick background. I'm not going to give you too much detail because I want you to buy the book, so you'll have to uh, look up all these things. it, it's, a per, it's a pretty good read uh, because I put all the notes and uh, citations at the end of the book, so you don't have to go there if you don't want to. But uh, it, it, it's, uh, uh, it, it's a story that really starts uh, uh, with the Vietnam, uh, the end of the Vietnam War, and uh, the Watergate Congress, and the Uh, the the, uh, laws that were passed at that time and the shift, uh, uh, the change of American strategy and NATO strategy that uh, had been underway for a while but uh, was precipitated uh, uh, by the the Watergate events. And that was a kind of defeatism in the West. And uh, uh, the, the uh, strategy for that underlay the Cold War for NATO and the West was containment. That we uh, we organized with NATO and CETO and CENTO to stop the Soviet advances, and uh, it worked uh, it worked quite well. Uh, but <clears throat> gradually, the enormous overbearance of conventional power in Europe. Uh, became uh, more and more the focus and f- eventually the sole focus of uh, SHAPE headquarters and NATO headquarters. 180 Soviet divisions fully mobilized and ready on uh, on the border, uh, the Iron Curtain border. And uh, another 100 of fully equipped reserve uh, divisions behind that. And the most NATO could ever... Really uh, uh, deploy in all during the Cold War was 40 divisions. So it was clear that really the, the, the strategy had to be how do we how do we delay them getting to the uh, to the English Channel? And the pessimists said they'll get to the English Channel in a week, despite what we do. And uh, uh, the optimists said it might might take them four weeks, but so the answer obviously had to be: How are we going to? What are we going to do to stop them if we're not? If NATO is unwilling to deploy uh, a, a weight capable of absorbing that and and defeating that kind of attack, so the answer was flexible response. Flexible response was the resort then to tactical nuclear weapons. And I'm, I'm not not really talking about the, the nuclear mines and uh, nuclear artillery. We were re- really battlefield nuclear weapons. <clears throat> but the intermediate-range weapons that were to be uh, uh, used as uh, the Soviets advanced across Europe. And, of course, the Soviets never accepted that. It, the, the, it was – they – They just never took it seriously because, obviously, if we were in their position, we wouldn't either because uh, those intermediate nuclear weapons were falling on Western Soviet uh, uh, territory. So they never recognized a a firebreak between strategic and tactical. Once the war went nuclear, um, they, they believed it would go all the way. And so they did not believe and were not deterred by flexible response because their intelligence knew very well the weaknesses of Western democracies when it came to first use of nuclear weapons. <clears throat> and while within the uh, different military ministries, the, the uniform militaries uh, had a, a fully fleshed out doctrine to use them, the Russians did not believe, that any European or American uh, leader would ever go nuclear first. They would negotiate. They would first negotiate. And so that gave the Soviets a tremendous uh, self-confidence. And they felt that balance, what they called the correlation of forces, enabled them to use uh, to political advantage uh, that, uh, that uh, uh, tremendous conventional uh, balance. So that's, that was the, uh, the source of the Brezhnev Doctrine uh, uh, and uh, their uh, professed and uh, advertised uh, willingness and indeed intention to intervene in any country where socialism, communism was, uh, uh, was being challenged. And that led to their uh, tremendous increase uh, during the uh, late 60s and 70s uh, of uh, funding uh, support to uh, to the Sandinistas and to the Cubans and to the uh, interventions in Africa and uh, really throughout Latin America. And so uh, there, the, the, the balance was shifting, and that led – to a kind of defeatism within NATO, uh, circles, which, which, uh, w- which really, um, manifested itself, uh, as the, the, the urge to, for detente. And, uh, the Western democracies shifted their foreign policies really to, uh, to pursue detente, to make concessions, to, um, not to rebuild or build up any further their militaries, uh, and to negotiate uh, increasingly a broad range of uh, of uh, uh, concessions uh, uh, and uh, arms control agreements to uh, to try to solve the problems and the threat from this uh, tension on deck. The admiral is on the bridge. I was just saying I've been uh, I've been so nervous coming in and finding my roommates bust as you walk <laughs> through the door. So, uh, uh, but welcome aboard. So, in, in any case, this defeatism was not shared by a broad range of intellectuals and uh, professionals <clears throat> and statesmen. Largely in what's what. what used to be called the realist school uh, of uh, uh, of national security policy. The uh, geopoliticians like Kissinger and uh, uh, Sam Huntington at Harvard and uh, Robert strauss and Bill Kintner at Penn, and uh, uh, that was a broad school. And Ronald Reagan got very interested in them after he lost the nomination in '76. In and he embarked on a, uh, a, a fairly in-depth uh, uh graduate program to really understand the the intellectual foundations uh, of, of a, a different approach than what was the orthodoxy through the west at the time and so he traveled and met uh with the, the leaders in Europe uh, particularly people that shared his worldview like Helmut Schmidt in Germany and Maggie Thatcher in the U.K. and others in uh, in Asia. And uh, he read deeply during those, uh, those years. And uh, then when he announced that he was running for the nomination again in 77, and he was asked, well, if you become president, what's your Cold War strategy? That's when he famously said, my strategy will be straightforward and simple. We win, they lose. And he really believed that. And, of course, he was ridiculed by the establishment and the intelligentsia, so-called. And this cowboy, this B-film uh, B actor, doesn't understand the nuances of, uh, of policymaking. And, uh, and he was ridiculed. But he had really done his homework, and he had brought around him advisors to help him put together a plan to move from containment to a forward strategy that involved rollback, intellectual rollback and political rollback, instead of just containment. And. Uh, he he was very impressed with work that was going on and long-term policy uh going on at the naval war college and elsewhere uh, uh on naval strategy because since since the 19th century well really before that uh, naval culture and naval doctrine was n- not defen- the only defense was offense that was uh, the foundation of Arthur uh, Alfred Thayer Mahan, uh, it was why Teddy Roosevelt built, his, built the fleet to what it was. It was command of the seas, unapologetic maritime supremacy. This was a word, by the way, that got banned in the American government and in Brussels for almost 20 years. I mean, in the Carter administration, it was prohibited. To use the term maritime superiority, even to quote Mahan, uh, and, and use command of the seas, because this was disruptive to detente. And uh, as a, 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 another manifestation of that policy, there was uh, a prohibition against the, taking the annual Navy exercises north of the GIUK gap, the Greenland, Iceland, UK uh, continent. Uh, gap became a kind of Maginot line, and while some naval ships uh, combatants were did go up there into the Norwegian Sea and into the northern Pacific waters, never as a large formation, single double ships uh, but never never major exercises. and there were major exercises uh, all through the Cold War every year uh, in NATO but they were, uh, and I'm talking hundreds of naval ships, but they were prohibited from going north in those exercises, uh, north of the GIU-Gay Gap. And uh, the exercises were useful practices, underway replenishment and integration of communications and so forth uh, between the NATO navies. But never any uh, real strategic thinking behind those exercises. It was all tactical. So uh, Reagan really believed during the campaign that this was fundamental uh, to uh, ending the Cold War, that we had to change our uh, uh, strategic thinking. We had to use the tremendous advantage that NATO had, which was ignored in in Brussels and shape and that was geography Brussels and shape and all the NATO planning meetings and I see people a, a fair number of people here who have attended these NATO ministerials and uh, the nuclear planning group and so forth it was obsessively focused myopically on the Fulda gap the north german plain and the conventional uh, uh, land balance. The seas were something that, you know, uh, the Navy needs to bring the beans and bullets, but there's nothing else they can do to affect uh, the, the North German plane. And so uh, this uh, this was a, a, a weird kind of uh, total uh, refusal to look at a map because... Anybody looking at a Mercator projection can see that the Warsaw Pact was a landlocked uh, alliance, nearly all of it above the 50th parallel, which is lousy geography for agriculture, which was why Russia uh depended throughout the Cold War for 85% of its foodstuffs from uh the free world. And they had... Essentially, no warm water ports they had uh, 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 they were surrounded by the seas and and it was the NATO navies who historically and traditionally commanded those seas and this is there were a few people like Admiral Gorshkov to, who understood this and were able to get having served as chief of the Navy for thirty some years was able to get support to Take command of the seas so that they could not be used against uh, against the Soviet Union. But uh, inherently, the great navies of the world were uh, were the NATO navies and the uh, uh, Japanese and uh, other allies in in Asia. So this was a huge advantage, a geopolitical advantage that NATO was ignoring, and so. Uh, Reagan ran on a platform. If you look up uh, the 1980 uh, Republican platform, it is built on the national security side on the 600-ship navy and maritime supremacy. That was the major plank that he ran on in the foreign policy side of, uh, of the campaign and it wasn't just the republicans at all in fact there were as many democrats who helped put this strategy together led by people like scoop jackson and uh, uh and uh john stennis and uh, uh many of the long standing uh, uh leaders in the house uh, because there were at the time uh, a, a very strong non naval uh uh and and non defense oriented uh, Republicans like Clifford case and many others that, uh, so it was really a, a bipartisan majority, not a Republican. And it wasn't polarized the way it is today. And, uh, uh, and really that's how it succeeded because when Reagan won the election, he immediately started implementing it. And, uh, he, uh, uh, we, uh with the help of many of the people here and uh, that have spoken here, uh, like Bill Schneider and others, the program had been fully uh, costed out. Uh, budgets had been drawn up before the election uh, that were well costed out for rebuilding the Navy, rebuilding the Air Force with the MX M- uh, 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 M- uh, M- M- missile, uh, with the backfire bomber, the army was to be expanded and was expanded to 20 divisions. So it was across the board. But uh, it was the Navy that was the major thrust to use the vulnerability, use the Navy to prove to the Soviets that they had huge vulnerabilities that NATO had been ignoring. And so uh, uh, during the transition in meetings, uh, he asked, what can we do to show the Soviets that we that this is really a re- fundamentally change in nato strategy this is not just a cam- this is not campaign rhetoric this is a f- real change that's going to end the cold war how can we do that right away and so by then we had a program to take uh the uh the annual exercises that year they had different names but that year it was called ocean venture Hence the name of the book, uh, and uh, some 220 ships uh, from all the NATO navies, and to take that the the uh, North Atlantic part of that exercise, and instead of cowering below the GIUK gap, to turn left in the Davis Channel, and go north, and so he really liked that, and he said, uh, "Yeah, let's do that." But I, I said at the time, Mr. President, there's, uh, President-elect, there's a, uh, a little difficulty here. You also have to let us uh, not tell the JCS and, uh, and not tell NATO, because there are 6,000 bureaucrats in the JCS, and it will leak. It will yeah. be guaranteed to leak, and then you'll have to deal with the uh, with the public debate the chiefs will then say we will study it and come back in five years or so and uh, uh, so uh he so you have to let us just do this navy and air force alone uh, because the air force had had been fully integrated into naval strategy with the b-52s equipped for mining and for harpoon missiles and and with the F-15s fully integrated in the air defense of uh, Norway and so forth. Uh, and uh, <clears throat> he said, uh, uh, so we have to just do it alone. And he said, well, how uh, – can you, can you do this without uh, telling, telling them? And we said, yeah, because, first of all, no one in the Joint Staff and no one in NATO – cares about what the Navy does. They're they, you know, as long as they're gonna be the truck drivers during the war. They don't understand what navies are. A lot of them think that ships are really solid, not hollow, like they're toy boats. They don't have no idea what goes on in these exercises. <clears throat> and he said, well what about the what about the European allies? And I said, it's even safer there because the Royal Navy never tells the Ministry of Defense what they're doing, and that's true of nearly all of the European uh, governments. And so uh, so he said, okay, let's do it. So we had to start on uh, the uh, 26th of August. Uh, we uh, sortied 82 ships out of Norfolk because the Europeans had had come over. We had... Uh, Two carriers, two U.S. carriers, and uh, 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 five or so uh, fairly large deck uh, uh, helicopter carriers from Europe and the Invincible-class jump jet carrier. And we turned left and went through the Davis Strait. And the first the Soviets knew we were up there was when Ace Lyons, who was kind of the Navy's patent, uh, who we'd appointed uh, as the uh, uh, as the strike fleet commander, he sent a, a flight of four F-14s, four A-6Es, and four K-60 tankers a thousand miles from the carrier because he had intelligence that the Russian Russian Navy was doing a major exercise right off uh, uh, Murmansk, and. First they knew that there was a carrier in the Norwegian Sea it was when this flight of 12 aircraft blew through the middle of their exercise at 550 knots, and it just blew the Soviets' mind. They had This was inconceivable to them. Where did these come from? Obviously, they were carrier jets, so they knew the carrier had to be there somewhere. And so they launched everything. They, they Every aircraft they could get off the ground, every ship and... Uh, uh, it it was uh, it just totally uh, blew their mind and they uh, they didn't really get a paint on one of the carriers uh, until a week after they were up there and uh, it, it was because Ace especially had had long been cover and deception and he had uh, worked uh, to uh, equip a ship that could put all of the emanations of, of a full battle group—the uh, sonar, the, the uh, communications, the, uh, the all of the radars, the screw noises, and everything—into the water, and uh, and it was very effective, very uh, 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 very much a part of uh, uh, of the overall strategy. So uh, that uh, uh, that became the template for the next six years. Uh, we ran these uh, these exercises bigger and more complex. Every year, we took the lessons learned because we had about 100 ops analysts with every uh, exercise. We analyzed it, put it up uh, into the war games every summer, the global war games at Newport, and uh, refined them, f- figured out what worked, what didn't work, what tactics were effective, and uh, and built them into the next, uh, the next exercise. We did it in the North uh, Pacific, uh, just uh, three months after we did it in the Atlantic, in the Norwegian Sea, uh, running mock attacks, uh, right up to Vladivostok and, uh, Petropavlovsk. Because the whole purpose was to show the Soviets they couldn't stop us. They could not stop us. and uh, and that we not only could neutralize their naval power and their defenses, but we could then strike deeply into uh, the Soviet Union itself against their strategic targets, and there was nothing they could do to stop us. Well, this was a huge change, because the Soviets had counted, if the war started, from moving all of their forces in in the, the Eastern Soviet Union to reinforce NATO and so suddenly they were faced with the fact that they they couldn't they couldn't move any uh forces uh to uh, support their invasion of of nato and uh, and it just created real uh real turmoil year after year we did this everyone became more effective uh and it culminated in 85 and 86 and in 85, we for the first time ever put an aircraft carrier, full aircraft carrier, into the Norwegian fjords and operated the air wing a consistently, a full air wing running strikes through the Norwegian mountains right up to the Swedish border. And we'd always pop up and put the IFF on so the Soviets knew we were there. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and they were never able to do it in... in uh, Eighty-six, we did it again, and even in a more, using more sophisticated uh, uh, technology. And uh, it just they, – they didn't know what to do. They never saw – they never got a paint, despite having their entire northern fleet and all their aircraft, they never got a paint on a carrier in the fjord. And uh, uh, it was uh, – it just fundamentally – Changed their entire thinking uh, of what you know what the, the the balance really was, and we found out later through intelligence, and then openly at, uh, at an Oslo uh, or a Odo conference, they were quite open and told us that we never were able to uh, keep the Northern Fleet operational for more than a week in those exercises because they had their own ops analysts. Uh, there, and uh, so they sent a demarche to the Politburo in eighty six saying, "We must treble the budget for the northern fleet and the north uh, northern Air Force, uh, or we cannot defend the homeland for more than a week and that hit like a like an explosion in the Politburo and it was just what gorbachev. Uh, was looking for because that enabled him because the, the he was under he he more than anyone knew that the Soviet economy was collapsing. I mean, it, it was just trying to keep up, and this was the heart of uh, of Reagan's genius in that he he truly believed that their economy and their culture was so inefficient that they. It, with just a minor increase of a couple of percentage points on our defense spending, expanding all of the capabilities of the services, that and and of course, he had another layer. It's interesting. He's he, during the transition, in one of the meetings, um, uh, the uh, uh, CIA director had uh, uh, had had who was a big advocate of psychological warfare, had had gotten uh, uh, the president uh, very much interested in psychological warfare. And he said at one of these meetings, okay, we're, we are going to make all of the services 10 feet tall, but we're going to make the Soviets think that they're 15 feet tall. So there was an overlay of psychological warfare initiatives. Uh, that uh, uh, the Soviets had a hard time figuring out what was real and what wasn't. And so they tried to match, uh, match all of them, uh, Star Wars being the most prominent and eventually the most effective. Uh, and the President, uh, in a couple of years, uh, came to be a true believer in Star Wars, not as a psychological add-on, but as a real program. And it didn't matter whether it was real or not, because the Soviet military uh, believed it, it was real. And they demanded that they have their own Star Wars program. So Gorbachev was faced with these demands where they were already we now know, even though CIA was saying they were only spending you know eight to 12 percent of the GDP, we, we now know they were spending almost 45 percent of their GDP. And now they're getting new demands from the uh, from their military uh, to fund huge increases. So this is really the straw that broke the camel's back, and it gave Gorbachev Gorbachev uh, when uh, as a result of the Northern Wedding exercises, the uh, uh, the, the uh, general staff was demanding uh, three. Uh, times the budget for the northern fleet, he not only said no to that, he cut the budget and ordered that we move into a more defensive, we the Soviets, move into a more defensive posture, not trying to interdict in the west, bring these attack submarines back, pull the SSBNs under the ice cap, uh, and, um, and stop trying to be offensive. And that's when they had launched this huge initiative across, around the world for naval arms control and uh uh that was um uh, and and <clears throat> it's uh uh it, it led soon to a coup d'etat attempt of which you, you may all recall more of the details of it that were classified are in the book uh, and that in turn the fact that they were able fairly easily to defeat the coup attempt enabled Gorbachev to purge all of the services of people who were not his supporters, uh, which were most of of the top top leaders. And so that enabled him to sit down seriously uh, with President Reagan and start to negotiate uh, uh, really. But he was still, of course, that led to Vladivostok uh, and uh, his his two top priorities were, uh, naval cutbacks and above all, uh, stop, uh, star Wars SDI. And that's when Reagan said no and walked away. And, uh, that forced the Soviets then to negotiate seriously. And, uh, um, that was the end of the cold war and, uh, uh, that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Uh, questions? Yeah. Uh, a
0: couple questions. Reading the book, I'll ask you, and then I'll open it up to our uh, distinguished audience here. Um, so you mentioned uh, history not repeating itself, but rhyming, and uh, that came back to me uh, throughout the book as, as I read it. Uh, and it I think definitely resonates today, right as you say of people uh, prevailing attitude of you know foreign policy, I think even you see internationally now of you know appeasement containment for some of these you know bad actors, people around Russia is it North Korea, even some of the things that China is doing very aggressive um, around the world and uh, and also you know, if you look at you know some of the threats now today, this more modern capabilities, you know long range missile sets. Uh, space-based ISR, and and many will say that no, it's it's an unwinnable war, right? The Navy carriers are um, obsolete. We can't we can't uh, you know fight back. Um, and but looking back, you know, at this, and then looking towards today, I've been interested in your thoughts of this, and and should you know, the Navy is, and the nation is starting to do some more um, more complex exercises with ball tops. But do we need to take a uh, you know, kind of up it a few steps and go back to much more complex uh, joint exercises that are really pushing new strategies uh, in the war fighting proficiency and some of those that would, and your point of whether uh, some may think this is much more escalatory on that piece. I'd
2: be interested in your thoughts. Well, a very good simple question. <laughs> <laughs> it's, um, uh, you know, uh, no, underlining Ronald Reagan's Strategy was not to uh, defeat the Soviet Union, not to build a military uh, that uh, could enable uh, attacking and bringing down, um, but to make it clear to the Soviets that they could not win by going to the military, to deter. Uh, and deterrence is a simple concept, but it's a very valid one just as applicable today. Deterrence is just uh, making it clear uh, to an adversary that if they attempted to use military power to their advantage and our disadvantage, that they would suffer far more than they could gain. And uh, uh, that's what underlay Reagan's forward strategy, and it succeeded because it soon became clear that they could not defend the homeland from all azimuths around the world where naval power could be projected uh, could be projected in naval and air power uh, and uh, uh, that's what we have to reestablish today that's what we don't have today that's why uh, we've uh, the, the the basic problem with the disturbers of the peace today china russia uh, North Korea, Iran, is they perceive that they can gain advantage without cost or with an acceptable cost. And that's what we have to remove. Now, it doesn't take the kind of buildup that Ronald Reagan uh, brought about in our military capability. Uh, we have to increase uh, the capabilities because the threats we t- face today are very different than the Cold War. These are not existential threats whatever China may become, it is not today or really in the foreseeable future an existential threat to the United States the way the Soviet Union was. And certainly none of the le- lesser uh, uh, lesser pl- uh, adversaries are. So what we have to do is rebuild that capability. Uh, today, we are not deterring because we let Let's just focus on the naval uh, forces. We let the naval forces shrink from 594 ships to about 240 at the low point. And uh, that is why they all started running into each other. And, uh, uh, you know, to terribly mix the metaphor, we have been running our fleet into the ground. Uh, Maintenance deferred, maintenance not done, ships deploying uh, without having ready... Uh, combat systems, uh, no training. They they did away with uh, the school for surface warfare officers because they had to send them straight to the fleet. They didn't have enough uh, manpower, training just kind of collapsed, and uh, and so we lost the edge and we lost uh, lost the the mission capability. Quite apart from the numbers of ships, it was the numbers that for, that. Brought about this tremendous erosion during the period, particularly of sequester, when uh, we had no defense bills at eleven straight continuing resolutions, and and uh, and so uh, it's not uh, it's not rocket science, and it's not a massive increase in, in budget breaking spending to restore. Uh, the size of the Navy to be big enough to do the things that the combatant commanders demand of them and to uh, restore the training and readiness. It's going to take, it obviously is going to take a steady increase, but uh, not on the scale of uh, Ronald Reagan. As to the kinds of ships we have and, uh, uh building the issue of vulnerability of surface ships, of course, all surface ships, uh, are 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 vulnerable uh, uh, uh they're not as vulnerable as land bases you know air force bases army divisions uh, every kid has the has the uh, lat longs of uh, fort bragg and uh uh all of the uh, uh, army and air force bases around the world and they can't move at least our small fleet can move at 30 to 35 knots and use cover and deception, and so they're harder to kill. Carriers, it, it, there's nothing new in the carrier debate. The first uh, first claims that carriers were too vulnerable to spend money on was in 1917 when the British launched the first full <laughs> aircraft carrier. And every year, the same tired old argument: oh, they're so, oh, well, you know, the Germans have these new bombers, or they have the submarines, or new torpedoes. The, real, the worst threat the Navy ever faced uh, from missiles was at Okinawa, where the fleet couldn't use the mobility. They, uh, they were stuck in the, the bays around, uh, 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 around Okinawa because they had to support the, the troops that were ashore. And the kamikaze threat, uh, which had much smarter guidance than any missile system today, um, were an enormous threat. And they came in waves and numbers constantly, 100 straight days of 24 hour attacks. They would come in sea skimming 20 feet uh, uh, over the water. Uh, They would come in sea skimming and then pop up and dive vertically down where they studied where the the fire arcs of the defensive ships were, and uh, and so we lost 35 destroyers went to the bottom in that battle. Four aircraft carriers were essentially put out of action, uh, but we had more than a dozen. Uh, none of them were sunk, by the way, because the the later carriers in the war. <coughs> Uh, were, you know, 30,000 tons and, uh, uh, and, and today, of course, they're 100,000 tons. You take a Nimitz class carrier today, the only thing it's, you can really kill one, uh, with is an uh, atomic weapon, a, a nuclear weapon. The Nimitz class has three, it has triple, uh, HY 100 armored decks. It's got a thousand watertight compartments. It's got seven layers of side protection around the entire ship, and uh, uh, nobody would notice if an Exocet hit uh, hit a Nimitz class because it couldn't penetrate more than about three of the of the alternating different materials that protect it. It's got triple hulls underneath for uh, for uh, uh, t- against torpedoes. Sure, it can be put out of action with enough hits, and anything can, but it's still the best and most optimum platform for deploying, you know, as we, we uh, used them in the Haiti crisis uh, during the Reagan years, uh, to transport the uh, Army airborne divisions. They took the air wings off and put the helicopters and all the support equipment and and uh, uh, the vehicles uh, of the of two uh, divisions of uh, Army units. In uh, in the immediate response to 9/11, there were no uh, available air force bases to to uh, support an attack into Afghanistan at the time, and so the Kitty Hawk was deployed with the Army Rangers and the SEALs and the Air Commandos uh, for the initial attacks on Torabor and the attempts to, uh, uh, to, to, uh, to 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 get. Uh, uh, Osama bin Laden. Uh, so a carrier is just a movable, survivable piece of of uh, geog- American sovereignty, and uh, to do away with them because there are new kinds of missiles uh, is silly. Because the you know there's been a seesaw uh, back since the Stone Age on offense versus defense, new breakthroughs in offensive weapons. Uh, give them an advantage to the offense for a certain amount of time, and then the defensive systems uh, take over. A typical a carrier battle group has seven layers of defense that a missile has to get through before it it actually hits. And the closer into the key targets it gets, the thicker and denser the the defenses become. The real issue today is cyber. That is the biggest vulnerability that we face. We do have pretty good offensive capability, uh, but it is here that there are vulnerabilities that are difficult to cope with. And particularly as we've moved all of our services to into uh, network warfare and distributed uh, uh, data and, uh, uh, and without really uh, fallbacks, um, you talk to a soldier in Afghanistan and ask him, "Where's your map? You, this is your objective. Where's your map? We don't need a map. We've got, we've got my little GPS here." Uh, in the Navy, they don't teach. Uh, uh, they don't teach uh, celestial navigation anymore, as you know. Did you take it? Oh, yes, I did, sir. Yeah, I definitely <laughs> I had to practice with that. And... and you may be called back to active duty. <laughs> because, uh... Even in my submarines, we still practice uh, <laughs> shooting the stars. Yeah, well, uh, uh, we, we, have, uh, we have these vulnerabilities that we did not build a graceful uh, uh, degradation into our systems because – who knew? You know, and now we know uh, cyber. There is no, no digital system that cannot be attacked through cyber. So this is a whole new level of challenge that has to be done. But to say that we've got, we can't waste money on building the navy up uh, because we've got to spend on these much more uh, uh, arcane and technically difficult uh, uh, challenges is. You know, if you're not there, you can't do anything. And you know these exactly. stupid arguments that uh, uh, around, uh, uh, oh, we don't need we don't need a 355 ship navy because our our each of our combatants today is is far more capable with far more sophisticated technology than they ever had before. And uh, but it, if they ain't there. It doesn't matter exactly. A ship can only be in one spot at once. Yeah, and the fact is, we are we now face uh, real potential threats in more areas than we did during the the Cold War, and uh, we we are very vulnerable, uh, totally dependent on a very integrated trade uh, network around the world, and this is really why the Chinese we brought about the Chinese naval buildup, and they were very, very, very clear uh, about it. After we did the 40 percent cuts on our defense budget, after we won the Cold War, uh, the Chinese – and we had lots of interaction with the top Chinese uh, thinkers and leaders. Uh, I, I was over there twice, and Everybody I met with, from the top, the general staff, and the intelligence bureaus, they were all Caltech and UCLA and Stanford grads, all with very nice Italian suits and uh, <laughs> uh, very bright people. And they were very frank. They said, "Look, you know, we're we are far more dependent than you are on uh, on uh, the seas, uh, all of our foodstuffs, and technology. Eighty-five percent of all of our comes through these straits of Sunda and Malacca and, and uh, uh, through the South China and East China Seas. And, uh, and you're not here. You used to be here. We never see a carrier anymore. And, and you know, uh, it's, there are no naval ships visible anywhere in the Pacific. And so uh, – and we know, you know, we follow your politics very closely. We know you're not going to rebuild this navy that you are uh, dismantling. And so we had depended on uh, a certain stability in the the Pacific, which is now disappearing. Uh, You can't even stop the pirates in the Indian Ocean. And so we're going to build a 600 ship, navy ourselves. We'll build it. And we have to command the seas really all the way out to Hawaii. You can have Hawaii. I said, wouldn't you be interested in California? <laughs> we might negotiate there. But, uh, uh, they, uh, they were not, you know, um, this was not bellicosity that, uh, uh, that built it. Now, you know, the appetite comes with the eating, and as they're now beginning to deploy uh, a real Navy, there are definitely advocates to say, hey, yeah, we do need Hawaii. And... Um, uh so uh, it's uh, it's really a uh, 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 it's a challenge we have to meet not just there but in every one of the adversaries we have you have to be able to deploy sufficient power visibly and you can't just say oh we've got it and now we've got we've got uh, 10 carriers and uh, the fact that they never leave port is uh, uh, a, a, a side issue you have to have real power you have to go show it you've got to Trained to do it, and prove to them that you can do it, and they can't. And that's that's what it's all about. All right. Thank you for a very uh, very thorough
0: uh, answer, there, sir. I'll uh, take a couple questions from the audience. Uh, so first, right down here in front. Uh, hold on a say we got a microphone coming, so our audience uh, on the computer can hear. If you could state uh, your name, where you're from, and then your question, please. Sure, my name
1: is Kevin Wensing. I'm a retired Navy captain. I used to work with the secretary. Uh, there's two other sort of battlefields of uh, space, which we're much more dependent on now than we were 30 years ago, and now the Arctic, which is a new potential area of interest. So your comments on those two areas.
2: Well, I I, uh, I, I think that the uses of the Arctic are overblown. Uh, it's never going to be a real game changer in in commercial uh activity uh since the northwest passage uh uh and the uh the northern arctic passage opened up there's only been one container ship that's ever bothered to use it and uh when you when you can't use things all year round then you do not get the benefits of liner uh these large container and tanker and and so forth so um I don't worry too much about that. Our capability of our submarine force to command those underseas, under ice areas is where we have to worry because we have not been spending sufficient money on ASW, and the Russians have. Uh, and so um, I, I, I really uh, – uh, I don't worry too much uh, uh, about, uh, about the Arctic. And the other area space – a question do we need a, an independent space command um, I, I as everybody knows uh, having been a, a a very vocal opponent of the centralization of uh, goldwater Nichols and other quote reforms I believe in in decentralized uh, management not centralized management and and so uh, Making an independent space command, uh, could make sense if it were done right, but it won't be done right. It'll just, <laughs> yeah. it, Instead of being a devolved, efficient, more efficient, uh, uh, service, it, it'll just become another layer of bureaucracy, another layer of delay. Every reform of centralization, uh, since, uh, since the Korean War, has added additional years to how long it takes. As everybody knows, you know, I'm, uh, I've been the kind of uh, crazy uncle in the attic on this. Um, they, you know, the Polaris program and the Minuteman program were tremendous breakthroughs in technology. They took, the Polaris took uh, from the, literally the back of an envelope uh, concept over a lunch. From that until the deployment of the George Washington on its first fully operational strategic cruise was four years. And that involved designing a new submarine, a new uh, uh, launching system, new solid fuel propellant, new uh, guidance system, inertial guidance for the submarine, and a totally different one uh, for the missile uh, warheads, a new data bus, a new warhead, and uh, all that was done in four years with slide rules. Today, the average time for an Acat one or two program, uh, and for the Navy Department, that's over a hundred. The average time now is about twenty-three years to get to travel that same distance, just for the reformed Goldwater-Nichols approved uh uh requirements through the JROC and approved by uh the the bureaucracy just the paper that says we could use this is five and a half years for the acat one and two programs and so you know that in, in many ways that's the biggest threat and that's why i i i don't think the space command makes sense because while it could, if it were done right, it will not be done right. It will be another layer of bureaucracy that will take the ACAT 1 and 2 programs from 23 years <laughs> at least to 25 years. Thank you. I think I
0: saw another uh, gentleman in the white shirt there.
3: Thank you. Sir, uh, Carl Golovin, retired special agent, U.S. Customs 9-11 responder, domain reference and idea, lives on Uh, Sir, uh, thank you for your leadership. And you were introduced as a 9-11 Commission member, a very important duty. And um, as a responder, I I have to take the opportunity to ask you, I helped sift the rubble of World Trade Center 7, the third tower of 47 stories that collapsed that day, uh, which tends to undermine the official story. There's since come out evidence of controlled demolition in that tower as well as 1 and 2, which... Your commission was led to not even mention World Trade Center 7 in your report. Also, I understand that you had abundant information about Saudi involvement, but you were led perhaps by certain FBI elements to not draw conclusions about that. So, I sir, I previously asked you this at the Institute of World Politics. You gave very informative responses, but they redacted my question and your very informative responses from their record of that. So I'd please ask you to inform the public with your answers on these important issues. Thank you.
2: Well, uh, I uh, I am agnostic on, on the Building Seven issue, um, and uh, the reason I'm agnostic is I uh, I I believe the response that was made uh, with regard to the sources of uh, that attack uh, were sufficient under the case, and that um, it it would not make a huge difference if we found that there were other people uh, in involved uh, because those other people would not uh, have distracted I mean the investigation from the source of this. Uh, and, uh, and the conclusions we drew was that, uh, the layering of, of the bureaucracy and the stovepipes, uh, prevented the sharing of information, uh, and, uh, uh, it, it, uh, 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 I think we, we, we made the right recommendations, Um uh, to to tear down those layers um, and and uh, really have more sh- sharing of key information uh the source uh, of the uh, uh of those uh, attacks uh i'm i'm sure many of you have read uh, the looming tower or seen the excellent movie about it uh there, uh, uh, there was a blindness, uh, you know, after, uh, that our system and the refusal to share is most dramatically illustrated by, uh, when the, uh, uh, the first attack of the blind sheikh, uh, group, which was really Al Qaeda, the precursors to Al Qaeda, uh, the information The director of CIA at the time told me face to face that he was not allowed to look at the evidence that had been gathered by the FBI and the NYPD because it was under seal because there had been a grand jury convened. And for five years of trial and uh, appeals, the president was not allowed to see uh, the director of CIA was not allowed to see uh, because this was uh, a prosecution. Had we seen that, it very and once it was finally when the convictions and the last appeals were over and it was released, you could see exactly what the the source of uh, of this threat. It was Al Qaeda, and it was well embedded into the New York. Uh, 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 community. And, uh, after that, uh, and so we could have stopped 9-11. We could have stopped it if, if the sharing of the information that CIA had had been shared with FBI. So whether or not one more building, uh, uh, it was sabotage rather than collateral damage or whether there were Charges planted uh, in in the World Trade Center. I'm personally skeptical. You know more about it a lot than I am, and you were you are a believer. But I don't think it would ultimately have made much difference. Uh, We would found a few more miscreants, but that's not the name of the game, and that's what that is what has brought us to this. FBI. You know, most of us in the 9/11 Commission believe the FBI should be split, like every European intelligence agency. And MI5, MI5 in the UK, the FBI equivalent does not have have prosecutorial powers. They're not cops; they're intelligence people. And we are the only uh, country that has uh, that gives the domestic intelligence to the guys who are promoted uh by getting indictments. And so, you know, this is, I thought, best illustrated. When I asked in one of the televised programs, asked the FBI director, there are these six Saudi employees, which gets to your Saudi, uh, and it's very clear that they were helped. They, they, these people came in through Canada, some of them went straight to the... Uh, the uh, Saudi mosque in L.A., uh, they were given money and given, uh, uh, given uh, support, uh, found apartments. They were then moved down to San Diego to the Saudi uh, mosque in, in San Diego where they were helped to get into flight school and so forth. We had the names of all of these people. And they were clearly helping, knowledgeably helping the the uh, 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 the, the hijackers. Uh, where are they now? And uh, the director said, "We don't know where they are." And I said, "Why? Why don't you know where? <laughs> I mean, this is would seem to be a pretty high priority." And he said, "No." We investigated them and we found insufficient evidence to indict them. So we dropped the case. That's the FBI. If you can't get a, if you can't get a, a conviction, you're not gonna, you're wasting your time. And, and that's still a fundamental flaw of our, of our system. And as to the Saudis' involvement, uh, we all know now, at least a lot of it has leaked out some of the, uh, the intelligence we had then. And it's now pretty much public knowledge of the protection racket that uh, that goes on between the Wahhabists and the government. I don't think the government uh, 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 had real knowledge of the attack. They didn't want to know, but you know, a substantial portion of the uh, of the Saudi budget still goes to the Wahhabist establishment. The new Crown Prince. I think is a very different uh, a, a change of direction with regard. And that's why the Wahhabists are so uh, upset about him. And it could mean a finally a fundamental change that uh, would take the, the Saudi uh, arrangement out of uh, support of, of jihadism.
0: One, uh, one final question, uh, down here in front. Oh, sir, when oh. in for like wait, 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 wait for the – so our audience can hear.
3: I'm an active-duty Navy officer on a fellowship to Congressman Joe Courtney over in the House. Uh, you ended your comments saying there's a, a need for a visible Navy that's deployed around the world showing the flag. I was hoping you could comment on Secretary Mattis' concept of dynamic force employment, which means having ships deploy less, keeping them closer to home at a higher state of readiness. When they do deploy, it's very unpredictable – Perhaps they're not going as far. They're not as visible. It seems to counter somewhat with your comments. I was hoping you, you could discuss that further. Thanks.
2: Uh, I support uh, General Mattis's uh, view on this. Uh, we've been trying with too small a fleet to to be too many places, and that's been leading to a disaster. Uh and uh, the deployment schedules have been unbearable we're starting to see, well, not starting, we're well into seeing exactly what happened in the late seventies where, uh, the people that you need to train the stiff arm chiefs and the, the technicians, uh, are not re-upping, uh, or they're getting out the minute they hit their 20 year, uh, mark, uh, they, uh, um, uh, they just their families won't won't put up with it, and uh, these back-to-back deployments, eight, nine months. Would be, you know, during during the '70s, we got to 11-month deployments, and that's when we started not to be able to uh, deploy ships. We had four ships in in uh, in '80 that could not deploy because they didn't have sufficient minimal uh, troops. The backlog for overhauls was over fifty-five or so of, uh, of ships awaiting and unfunded overhauls. Uh, so uh, yes, we have to we have to find a balance. Uh, you can still have presence without taking a full battle group uh, out because most of the time, they. Um, Uh, you know, for the signaling and the visible deterrence, uh, you know, our battle groups deployed with 18 to 20-some ships back in in the 80s, and they needed them. And we really need something like that now if we were to really face uh, the kind of ASW threat uh, and and missile threat that uh, the Russians can deploy in certain limited areas. Uh, because we're I think we're if there's one area where we're really behind it's not missile defense it's uh, it's uh, ASW we have let the uh, sosa systems uh, erode to uh, uh, well I won't go too far into it but way beyond where they should have been allowed to erode we the Soviets have concentrated their limited resources it's important to understand that you know as John McCain always used to say, you know, this is a a gas station with an economy the size of Denmark. Actually, it's just a little bigger than Denmark today. It's about the size of New York State. And we are probably 15 times the economy of Russia. And yet we're beginning to be intimidated by them the uh, the way NATO was back in the Cold War. So we have to be realistic about what our, our, where our threats come from. The biggest threat from Russia is that, uh, uh, that this guy has really focused his his attention on where he thinks our greatest vulnerability is militarily, and that is in his submarine capability and his ASW. Uh, he is now reportedly in the press uh, uh, tapping our cables and uh, mapping where he can cut all the Internet cables and so forth with his submarines. I guess we showed him how to do it. Now they're, they're, uh, uh, they're deploying very, very capable submarines. Uh, I think the real vulnerability then and now, uh, the same, is their new subs when they come out uh, of the building docks and first deploy are formidable. They've got the best technology. Usually developed by us, but not all. Uh, they've got some very good technology centers, but they uh, their second uh, deployment is a little noisier, and the third deployment is very noisy because they uh, they they really don't have the trained people and they don't have the infrastructure to maintain the kind of. Complexity needed, particularly for submarines, because, you know, as you know, keeping a submarine quiet is an art. Uh, and, um, so, uh, but they are much more of a threat than, uh, than we are currently best prepared to deal with. And, and those are the areas I think we've got to really uh, straighten up.
0: Thank you. I thank you all for coming today. Uh- Secretary Lane will be available for a few minutes for anyone who uh, wants him to sign uh, sign books. And I thank you again all for coming today.